0: and we have got a great show lined up for you today. We'll be interviewing Alexandra Amore, and she'll be a first for this program uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, she'll be our first Canadian guest, and she will also be the first guest who uh, we're going to explore a little bit of her nonfiction work. Uh, I think you'll find it interesting because she was uh, involved in a cult as a younger woman. Uh, but before we talk to uh, Alexandra, let's hear from our sponsor. Wrong Place, Right Cram is sponsored by Down and Out Books. And here from Down and Out Books is the chief editor, Eric Campbell.
1: Hi, Frank. This is Eric Campbell from Down and Out Books with a few books that drop in the next couple of days. First up, The Cost of Doing Business by Jonathan Ashley. Scott Adelberg says Louisville bookstore owner John Caitlet leaves his used volumes of Yeats behind to get into the drug trade and make some real money. And the result is blood-filled mayhem. He never loses his sense of literate irony, though, taking us through a fast, unpredictable novel with equal parts darkness and humor. A very confident debut. For those who enjoy short stories, you can't go wrong with Thomas Pluck's Life During Wartime. It's a Blackjack 21 collection of people caught up in crime, facing bleak horrors, or spun in the whirlpool of human absurdity. This collects the best stories of Thomas Pluck. Your listeners can find out more down on opbooks.com. Thanks a million for having me on the show, Frank.
0: Thanks, Eric. Folks, I've said it more than once. You're probably tired of hearing it, but uh, the truth will always be worth saying, and that is that Down and Out Books is a great publisher, and I'm really proud to be a part of their uh, catalog. So let's move on and uh, talk to Alexandra o'more Alexandra is quite the Renaissance woman, uh, she writes mysteries in. Uh, in the historical subgenre, She's done some short mystery writing, some romantic mystery writing, but she also writes some middle-grade books. Uh, so she has something in common with our former guest, Fleur Bradley, in that regard. Uh, and she's written a memoir called Cult, a Love Story, that is nonfiction and deals with the ten years that she spent inside a cult uh, up in Canada. So uh, lots to talk about with Alexandra. Let's dive right in. <music> Well, hello, Alexandra. Welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Frank. Thanks so much for having me on today.
0: Now, you are uh, calling in from the Canadian coast near Vancouver, correct?
2: Kind of, yeah. On the west side of Vancouver Island, which is off the mainland.
0: And we were just talking before the show that uh, you're getting some nice, soft coastal weather in comparison to, uh, say, Saskatchewan or Winnipeg.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I was saying, I, I heard somebody say last week that it was colder in Winnipeg than it is on Mars these days. So that's pretty darn cold.
0: So you are, uh, unless I'm mistaken, you are the first Canadian on the show. So congratulations.
2: Oh, hey, thanks. Yeah, waving the flag for the Canadians.
0: <laughs> when I introduced you before we got started, I uh, kind of coined a phrase that I used with Eric Bietner, uh, uh being an, a Renaissance man. I, I think you're a bit of a Renaissance woman here when, when we look at your... The breadth of what you've got going on so just by way of overview as an author you have uh, an adult historical mystery series some historical romance some middle grade children books plus the book that you wrote about a very interesting topic that I want to get to in a minute uh, being part of a cult a, a cult not the occult um, <laughs> an important distinction with a very big difference yeah. Uh, and you're also a fellow podcaster. So uh, knuckle bump sister, you know,
2: um, <laughs> right, yeah.
0: and, uh, I, and I'm sure there's other things that, that we're going to discover. So which of those things would you like to talk about first?
2: Well, you know, the thing that pops to mind, too, actually, is that if there are any independently published authors listening, and I'm part of that group, that, you um, being a renaissance person is not necessarily a good idea uh, in that it's a lot easier to sell books if you stick to one genre and so i didn't know that starting out and so my first book was the memoir that you mentioned about 10 years i spent in in a cult in the 1990s and that book i would have written no matter what because it was just really kind of burning a hole in my chest trying to get out and then the, then if I had known better, I would have just picked one genre and started and, and continued writing from there. But I kind of bounced around for a while. Um, and I think it was good in that it helped me to develop my craft, which is something we're always doing. But at the same time, I think it's a little bit confusing for readers to figure out exactly what it is I'm selling. So, yeah, there's pros and cons to both those things.
0: Well, it looks like your flagship mystery series is the historical mysteries would you say that's your main series or is that is there another one that you would call that
2: no yeah you're right the the town called horse series is the main one um and it's the one i'm focused on now and it's yeah it's kind of where i landed um as the type of book that that really suits me and that i you know i have enjoyed writing uh, not the most, I guess, but just really enjoyed sinking my teeth into. I like the, I like the historical aspect of it and the research that's involved. And then I've really grown um, attached to the characters. You know, it continues on. I get to revisit them every time I write a book, so it, I like that as well. So, what is the the basic setting of? Yeah, so it's set in eighteen ninety or the late eighteen hundreds, I guess. In a fictional town called Horse in the North Okanagan uh, region of British Columbia. It's sort of loosely based on a town called Vernon, which is up there, kind of at the northern end of end of Lake Okanagan. Mm-hmm.
0: Home and, of the Vipers.
2: Oh, really? The Vernon Vipers? Is that a <laughs> hockey team? Or yeah, that's a. Oh.
0: Yeah, it's a junior A or something. I think.
2: How do you know that?
0: Uh, so my son played uh, just a little bit of. Uh, b-level rep and we traveled a little bit up there and and uh that's kind of up near uh, uh penticton right Yep, that's an interesting area it's uh it uh, definitely has a BC look to it, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's starting to break into pra- almost a little bit into that Alberta prairie too. So-
2: yeah. It, you know, it's such an interesting part of the world or the country. It It's very deserty, you know, mm-hmm. and gets really hot in the summer. And then, mm-hmm. but it gets a ton of snow in the winter. So it's also, mm-hmm. there's also ski hills up there. Yeah. A lot of mountains. Um, it's lake country as well. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a bit of everything. And, I wanted to set the books at a time that was after the Telegraph and but before vehicles. Um, and also I wanted to set it after trains had arrived. So the last spike was driven in 1885 in Canada that connected um, the country east to west by rail. And so I definitely wanted that to be part of the stories. Uh, but I didn't want there to be vehicles and I didn't want there to be much technology to make it harder for my sleuths to, uh, to do their thing and solve their mysteries.
0: So who are those sleuths? Who are the main characters or the protagonist of, of their, uh, their horse?
2: Yeah, there, there's a trio really. The, the main main character is a woman named Julia Tom and she's a school teacher. And what I, really like about her is that she actually wanted to be a lawyer Um, but it at that time in Canada women weren't admitted to law school so she and her father is a judge and that's why she wanted to be a lawyer because she just grew up as an only child and um, was really close to her dad kind of assumed her whole childhood that that's what she would do and then when when the series begins she's had quite a big Falling out with him because she's a realized that she women aren't admitted to law school, and b that her dad won't go to bat for her to try to make that happen. And so she has this kind of knee jerk reaction. So she sees an advertisement for a school teacher in this tiny town that probably only has about 300 people that's just starting up in that part of the world, and she applies for the job and gets it. And so she ends up living living there by herself and then um, solving crime as you do when you move to a small town.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So she's a school teacher and who are her compatriots then? You said there was like a trio.
2: Yeah, so then she has sort of two sidekicks. One is the local constable. Um, His name is Jack Merrick. And the other is a fellow named Walter Sheehan, who's just come over from, well, in the last couple of years, from Ireland. And he runs the local blacksmith and also owns the livery. The three of them are kind of, I I don't want to say based on, but sort of loosely inspired by Robert B. Parker's the Spencer Hawk, Susan Silverman trilogy or trio, except in Mm -hmm. this case, uh, the main character is Julia, the woman.
0: Instead of uh, Spencer.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I really liked the the relationship um, that those three characters had in Robert B. Parker's books and I loved how they all, you know, they had each other's backs, even though they were very different people and supported one another and and yet, you know, could get on each other's nerves at times. And so that's the the dynamic I'm wanting to kind of explore and pay homage to with those three characters.
0: Well, it sounds like uh, the constable, he brings the official authority, the legitimate authority to the equation. And and Julia brings, uh, sounds like the brains uh, to the (laughs) scenario, not to say the constable doesn't have any. Uh, And then your blacksmith uh, from Ireland, does he bring uh, a little bit of brawn or a little bit of common sense or just a wee bit of parole?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that too. I would say, yeah, a bit of brawn. Um, He and Jack Merrick are both large individuals. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because Walt the blacksmith for the first few books was very much just sort of in the background, being a solid presence, you know, someone you knew who would help out. And in the, I'm writing a a novella right now, and he's actually the main character of the novella. Interestingly, I'm writing it at a time before Julia arrived in town. And so I'm learning more about Walt and about what matters to him. And, you know, he has a strong moral backbone, and yet he's an interesting guy because he's, you know, I think he had kind of a sketchy life uh, when he was in Ireland and, and left because of some trouble that he got into that I don't specifically know all the details of yet. And he's a bit of a tortured character too. He's got some stuff going on that no one really knows about him that I hope that we'll get to explore in future books.
0: You mentioned uh, the fact that obviously it's a series, so I see on your website, com, the first one was called Charlie Horse, uh, and the second one was called uh, Horse with No Name, both of them right. are being a town. Now, are, are, is there a third one? in the yeah. novel series?
2: No, actually, what what I'm doing, my cha- my writing challenge for 2018, um, so we're recording this on the 3rd of January, so just started, is to write a short mystery every month this year. So I started in, um, I sort of early in December of 2017, and if you look on the tab at my, my website that says short mysteries, there's one there called A One Horse Open Sleigh. And so that one does have Julia as the protagonist, but the one I'm working on now that will be released in the middle of January to my newsletter subscribers. And then after that, uh, up on the online retailers is the one where Walt is the main character. And unfortunately I don't have a title yet. I haven't figured out what it's called. So you'll have to stay tuned for that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Are, Are all of your short mysteries going to be set in horse? Yes. All 12? Yeah. You're writing a novella every month is what you're doing. That's pretty yeah. impressive.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, like we say, it it's only January, so we'll see what happens. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm loving it so far. It, it is challenging me and stretching me. And yet I love the idea of starting a new, I you know, starting off with a new idea every month and then exploring and seeing where, where that will go. So I'm hoping it'll this kind of excitement that I have about it will last throughout for the rest of the year. <laughs>
0: Do you think you'll explore uh, any narrators outside of those three?
2: That is a great question. And I, you know, for myself personally, as a reader and as, a, as someone who watches television shows and that kind of thing, I really appreciate books and programs that are about a community. So, for example, um, Call the Midwife comes to mind and Parks and Recreation. And I love that feeling of where I know many characters well, not just one mm-hmm. or two. Um, so it occurred to me that with this series of short, shorter novels that I could even, I could expand outward and, and write some from a point of view that isn't Walt or Julia or Jack. We'll just have to see. I mean, I, I, I would kind of assume that writers would enjoy reading about other people in that community, but it's a great question. And I, will, I think I'll just have to try it and see what happens.
0: You have another adult mystery uh, I noticed as well. It's more of a romantic mystery yeah. called Love and Death at the Inn. Yeah. Um a Juliet Island romantic mystery. Now is Juliet Island a fictional location? It is, yeah. Is it strangely similar to Vancouver Island? <laughs>
2: it's strangely well it's a it's a bit of a hybrid it's similar to pender island which is an island that my parents lived on which is in the the salish sea so in the u.s when you go across the u.s border the islands out near seattle are called oh the san juans so it they're sort of Mm -hmm. it's the northern bit of the san juans and in here in bc we call them the gulf islands and my parents lived on pender island for a while so it's a hybrid of that And of the area where I live now, which is on the west coast of Vancouver Island, the main character in that book owns a lodge, sort of a resort where people go on vacation. And it's based on a lodge here in the town called Tofino that I used to visit and go on vacation. And uh, it's a beautiful, yeah, it's just a beautiful location. And so I just created this fictional island that's very idyllic and full of lots of nice people and murder. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah if i look when you look at the cover it's a rather whimsical uh, cover so i yeah. get i get a real murder she wrote sort of vibe <laughs> from it is is that what you're trying to convey with the cover
2: yes absolutely yeah so sort of a lighter mystery definitely not uh the sort of dark noir stuff that you're used to writing frank but um yeah lighter and still murdery at the same time
0: and the lodge owner is the...
2: Yeah, she's the protagonist. She's um, an, an amateur sleuth. Someone ends up dead at the lodge that she runs. And so she... Um, God, it's been so long since I wrote it. I think uh, the local constabulary thinks that it's it was an accident and she's not so sure. And so she starts to look into it. And um, she's worried that the, the death will have a, an adverse effect on her business, which is struggling already. Um, so she wants to figure out what's going on and prevent it from happening again. And then she falls in love, of course, because it's a romantic mystery. Ah. Right? <laughs> yeah, of course.
0: It's of a course. romantic. But it is the I mean, it's his romantic mystery, which would lead me to believe it's a mystery first with some romance in it. But is it is it the other way around? Or?
2: No, yeah, definitely a mystery first with some, some romantic vibes. Uh,
0: and then the other uh, series of of books you've got going on here completely complete departure from, from mystery, but you have some middle grade animal adventures, uh, uh, starring sugar and Clive. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which is which, but there's a bluebird, uh, and a, what kind of dog is that? It's like a, it looks like the dog, like a Benji dog almost.
2: Yeah. She's kind of a, I describe her as a medium sized dog with caramel colored curls Um, she's kind of like a small labradoodle kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah and she that's sugar and clive is a is a barn swallow so the blue that you see is actually the blue that's on barn swallows and they live on another fictional gulf island called dogwood island here in bc and yeah that was my first foray into fiction i was writing children's books and as so many writers do i grew up reading a lot and loving, I mean, my favorite books were Charlotte's Web and mm-hmm. The Incredible Journey and any books that involved animals, The Black Stallion, that kind of thing. So yeah, the Sugar and Clive books are, are really my sort of love letter to those books from my childhood.
0: Well, you've got, uh looks like three novels, Sugar and Clive and The Circus Bear and The Bank Robbery and The Movie Star. Mm-hmm. This, the one with the movie star the cover's got this star on it with a uh, clapboard. He's got this funny expression on his face. It made me laugh the first time I saw it. Really evocative color covers, good covers. Uh, and then you have a, a novella here too called Larry at the Wedding. So is Larry, Larry looks like a seagull or something. Yeah. Is he like a, a minor character in the books or something like that?
2: He is, yeah. Larry's a, he's quite a character. He kind of reminded me of Archie Bunker when I was writing the <laughs> Sugar and <Salt. laughs> so. Um, oh, that's funny. You know, he's really crass. He's he's completely self-absorbed, uh, doesn't give a crap about anybody else, really is only concerned with finding his next meal. But he's sort of part of the, yeah, part of the gang that Sugar and Clive hang out with. And he, he really <laughs> demanded to have his own book. So there's a short story with him.
0: Uh, Larry at the wedding. I'm assuming he crashes the wedding.
2: <laughs> he does crash the wedding, yeah.
0: <laughs> he's a seagull. Of course he did.
2: Yeah, that's right. So
0: are these, uh, the Sugar and Clive, the, the main series here, they're adventures, right? They're not mysteries.
2: Yeah, you know, they're kind of mystery adventures, I should say. Uh, let's see, the bank robbery one, Sugar and Clive and the bank robbery is definitely a mystery. So the bank uh, on the island has been robbed. And that was based on uh, an actual true story. And the so the funny thing, just a little backstory on that book. So the my parents lived on pender island as i mentioned and one weekend after the saturday market uh the bank was robbed the islands are really small and and the, the one that my parents were on was smaller than some like uh, salt spring island is a lot bigger has a larger population but pender island at the time the bank didn't even have a vault um they kept the money in a filing cabinet um over the weekend <laughs> and someone Was there at who, least
0: a lock on the filing cabinet?
2: <laughs> you know, I, I think even if there was, it was one of those filing cabinets that if you tip it back a little bit, you can you can fiddle with the lock at the bottom of the cabinet and all hey, the drawers hey, Wait a, a minute.
0: Off. How do you know about this? How do you know about breaking into file cabinets? I'm starting <laughs> to get a little suspicious about
2: this. Here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, uh, you know, it takes a thief to catch one, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so they they kept the money in the file cabinet and somebody...
2: Someone Uh, robbed it? Yeah. Broke into the bank and threw the wall of a store adjacent and took off with the money and the crime was never solved, the real life crime. There usually wasn't that much money in the in the bank, but it had just been a summer Saturday market. So all the Mm -hmm. vendors at the market deposit their cash that they get that day into the bank and so whoever did it the 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 scuttlebutt on the island when my parents were living there and this happened was that it had to have been an inside job in other words someone who lived on the island because of the day that was chosen to do the break in because of the big haul from the market and yeah like I say the the mystery was never solved so I kind of took that real life event and then turned it on its head and and have the animals uh, have to solve the mystery of the
0: bank robbery. And then the other two, Sugar and Clive's, are they more straightforward adventures?
2: Yeah, a little more of an adventure for those two. Yeah. And Larry at the wedding.
0: Is it difficult for you to go from writing for adults to writing for kids? I mean, is there a switch that you
1: flip?
2: Yeah, there's definitely, you definitely have, I have to be in a slightly different mindset. Kind of a little, I don't know what what the right word is, looser or something. And just sort of remember what it's like to be a kid and um, how things are, often confusing and and yet children also look at stuff with such a unique eye because they don't have a lot of preconceptions about the way the world works and and I specifically wrote these books for uh, middle grade readers which is sort of the nine to 12 year old age group and I love that age because kids are still kids at that point they're kind of goofy and they haven't really uh, started to conform to society so much Um, and they're not cynical yet and yet they're a little bit grown up. You know, they, they, they're they starting to get stuff that's going on. So, that, yeah, that's why I chose that age group as opposed to teens or, or younger kids.
0: We'll get back to talking to Alexandra more in just a moment. But uh, now is the time in the show. And we like to turn to the experts to get a little bit of a recommendation as to what maybe we should be reading out there. For this episode, I decided to try something different since uh, the holidays of recently passed and uh since we've uh, all spent some time with our family over the holidays instead of uh going to the bookstores and uh getting those experts opinions which we will return to next month i uh, decided to ask some of my family members what they think you should be reading uh, so let's listen in on what uh what folks in my family think you ought to be reading
3: Hi, I'm Danji, I'm uh, Frank's brother-in-law. I'm currently reading Worm. It's a web serial by a guy who calls himself Wildbow. It's uh, sort of based in like a, you know, it's almost like a, like a comic book type setting. It's a bunch of superheroes, but uh, really really grounded characters.
0: Where does the worm part come in?
3: The protagonist is a teenage girl who has the ability to, to control bugs. Oh. That's cool. So although I'm not sure really where the worm comes in other than just in relation to that. So it's pretty good? Yeah, it's pretty good. Some of the, some of the action, like I, I wouldn't think that you could have as many different seemingly silly superheroes in something and make it as serious as it is. Also do the action as well as he does it. So yeah, it's, it's been thoroughly enjoyable.
2: Hi, this is Gail, Frank's mother, and the book that I would recommend is The Mountain Between Us. It's by Charles Martin, and I think the reason why I like it, it's uh, it, it talks about two strangers who um, become very good friends, and they have to rely on each other to survive, and um, it has a really good twist at the end.
0: This is the one where they crash on the plane? Mm-hmm. And, oh, yeah. cool. So they don't know each other at all? No, they're strangers. So they have to learn to trust and work
2: together. Yeah awesome hi my name's ashley i'm frank's sister i'd like to recommend the tripods trilogies by john christopher it's just a really fun uh, sci-fi with a, a young boy as the main character it's a nice adventure story
1: This is Frank Scalise, Frank's dad. I would like to recommend East of Eden, a classic by John Steinbeck. The writing is excellent, and the story is very interesting, and holds your interest all through the book. Going old school. Yeah, old school.
3: (laughs) Hi, I'm Nico, Frank's son, and I would like to recommend a collection of Halo short stories called Halo Evolutions, and, uh, if you're not really into sci-fi or Halo, you can just read one of my dad's books. He gave me $20 to say that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and there you have it, folks. <laughs> Opinion and, uh, uh, proof, I guess, that opinions can be bought. <laughs> anyway, pretty eclectic, uh, Set of books there to choose from. If hope uh, hope some of them inform your your choices, and now let's uh, return to our discussion with Alexandra Amore. So there's a quote on your website. It's a Thomas Paine quote: "Belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man." And that's an interesting quote. What does it mean to you, and how did it end up on your website? <laughs>
2: Well, that's uh, related to the memoir that we touched on earlier about 10 years I spent in a cult in the 1990s. And the quote I just thought was perfect for as it kind of addresses the theme of that book or the, um, the spine that runs through it in that anytime we believe, it seems to me anyway, anytime we believe in a God or a, a higher power that is vengeful and Punishing and discompassionate—that's how we act as well. It kind of gives us permission to behave that way, and in cults, that's absolutely what happens. So, uh, yeah, I just thought that quote was perfect for that mm-hmm. for the web page that that the book is on. Well, let's talk about the the cult.
0: What what exactly uh, happened that that landed you in a cult for ten years?
2: <laughs> how the hell does that happen, right?
0: So, the name of your book is "Cult: A Love Story." There's this cute little tree frog meditating uh looking looking rather meditative on the cover tell me about the the frog and tell me about how you ended up in a cult at age 22 for 10 years
2: yeah well so I'll start with the frog so the the choice of that image for the cover was really deliberate and there's an analogy that's used in the study of cults and people use it for other things as well environmental um causes sometimes use it and that is that if you If you put a a pot of water on the stove um, and you and the water's at room temperature and you put the frog in and then slowly raise the temperature uh, the frog won't jump out of the water Uh, it won't recognize the gradual change in temperature and so it will eventually boil to death whereas if you have the pot of water on the stove and you bring the water to a boil first and then put the frog in it'll jump out right away because it recognizes the danger uh, in the temperature of the water and so that's the analogy that people often point to when they're trying to explain what it's like to join a cult. So when you join a cult, the water isn't boiling; it's just at room temperature, and it's not—it's uh, not a cult, quote unquote. You, nobody uses that word within the group. And what happens is you join a group of people who who you really like, who are really good people. Um, and this—and I should point out too that the the psychological things that go on in a cult are not just restricted to the the types of groups that we necessarily see on the news like the branch davidians in waco or um the jim jones group and that kind of thing the the things that happen to someone's brain and the and the psychological pressures that a um there's kind of this complicated term um Authoritarian hierarchical leader will use on a group are similar in a number of different scenarios. So it can exist in multi-level marketing groups. It can exist in political groups. the The conditions can exist. I've heard of it in like really high demand corporate situations. Um, and also, they come to play in abusive relationships. So exactly the same thing occurs um in a cult as in an abusive relationship it's just that in a cult uh it the relationship is one to many so the cult leader to all the people who have joined and in an abusive relationship it's usually just one on one so uh how did i join so the group was um it was a meditation circle a meditation group in vancouver british columbia and my mom had joined and It, you know, like I said, it all looks very innocuous when you first start out. And I was brand new to Vancouver. I had just finished university. And so my mom asked if I wanted to go with her. um, And I did. And then gradually, um, the leader, you know, just starts to exact more pressure, more control. um, And very gradually, uh, my ideas and beliefs about things started to change until Eventually, anybody in a, in a cult or in that position comes to be in a position where you feel like you don't have any choice but to stay. And that's sort of the bottom line when it comes to um, authoritarian hierarchies or high-demand groups is that – and there's a book called – bounded choice, which is really good, which is about how cults work, your choices become bounded. And so you, you can't make the same kind, you, f- you believe that you can't make the same kind of choices um, that we normally just consider being part of being an adult. So in other words, to leave the group, um, what the condition becomes that if, if you leave this group, you are turning your back on God, um, on everything that's good in the world on the cause that the group is uh, putting forward and saying is the most important thing and so to do that really really feels horrible and that's why people don't do it that's why people stay as long as they do and even follow some cult leaders to their death
0: what was the was there a cause that uh, that this cult uh, was championing when you when you first joined
2: Yeah, so it was very much a sort of quasi new age spiritual group. And so the cause was spiritual in nature. So it was, you know, sort of serving the light, serving God, doing positive things for the world and the universe. And it it really did get that big in that when people left like me and others, you know, I really felt like I was letting the universe down when I left the group. Um, because that's what I had been told. So your sense
0: of perspective has to get pretty, pretty warped or pretty uh, skewed.
2: Absolutely, and you know it's just such an interesting phenomenon. I still find it endlessly fascinating, and that you know the the more often we think something or are told something is true the more we're likely to believe it and the longer that we believe something the more it becomes ingrained and so one of the frustrations that people have when they have a loved one who's in a group like this is that logic really stops applying so in other words if you know that someone you love belongs to a cult and is being adversely affected by the behaviors in the cult you can't really sit them down and just say look you know what you're doing doesn't make sense you know when you when you are sharing your beliefs they're they're not they don't really add up or they're not logical or they're detrimental to you um the person who's in the cult just has a bunch of um then has a bunch of mental sort of hoops that they jump through to to make sure that they don't question their own beliefs and that and that prevent them from understanding what their loved one is trying to trying to help them with it's a really complex sort of psychological state that people get into when they're in a cult. And it really is really hard to grasp because when we look at cults from the outside, you can see how horrible they are. You know, when we see the images on TV or the way that people are treated, you just think, well, God, how, you know, how, how would you even begin to get involved with something like that? And so that's why, that's why, again, why the frog is on the cover of the book to just really tie it back to it. It starts out very slowly, and it doesn't happen by accident. The cult leader is deliberately and methodically seducing every single person who's in the group. And the cult leaders are really aware of how to push all the right buttons in an individual and um, get them to respond to what's happening. And on the flip side, too, I mentioned this in the book, is that anytime somebody joins a cult, it's, it's kind of a perfect storm of... of personal um, situations that are happening at that time and usually someone who joins a cult is sort of in a vulnerable place in their life. People are often in transition when they join a cult um, which is why uh, really sort of cult-like churches often have offices on university campuses because when we're at that age where, where we're just transitioning out of our home for the first time it's, it's really a vulnerable time and we're not sure who we are and that's a great time to To get some, to recruit somebody into a situation they wouldn't normally get involved with. Nobody who joins a cult is stupid. And Mm. it really does involve just, like I say, a perfect storm of situation, time and place, and someone who's making an effort to manipulate you and get you involved.
0: Yeah, we all like to think that we're too smart or or too aware or whatever, but, uh, but we're all not, (laughs) It's all, you you know, you know, I mean, if, if all of those things applied to any one of us, I think we'd be in the same danger. Now you were part of this cult. Was your mom still in there or did she leave?
2: She left pretty early on, you know, shortly after I had joined, maybe within a year or slightly less. Um, one of the tactics that cult leaders use is that if, Someone is in the group, but their spouse isn't. Um, the cult leader will try to drive a wedge into that relationship, and the reason they're doing that is twofold. They want the person who's in the group to only have their loyalty face, you know, pointed in one direction, and that's at the cult leader. And they want the influence of the of the group members' family to be either reduced or eliminated. And so marriages. Um, in our group were just you know falling by the wayside left and right at the beginning and and the cult leader did try to do that with my mom and my mom just wasn't having any of it so she left the group and i stayed
0: now um you obviously eventually left the cult what what were the things that were going on that brought you to the point where you felt like you where, where you knew you had to leave
2: it, it was just such an interesting time and I'm, I'm so grateful that I was able to write about it all and, and writing about it actually really helped me to be able to look back with a fresh perspective and see what, what was really going on. So I think what was happening for the last couple of years that I was in the group, I was having questions about the group's motivation and, and concerns about behavior and yet I would barely even voice them to myself. It was great actually when I was writing the book the first thing I did when I got the idea was I went down to my storage locker in the building that I was living in and brought up three cardboard boxes full of journals and so I've always been a journal journaler and for three months I went through the journals and sort of made a timeline and made a note of things that had been going on in the group at that time 10 years earlier because I wrote the book 10 years after I got or eight years after I got out so one of the things I noticed was that in my journal, I was barely even able to voice just even to myself the questions that I was having about the group's behavior. along What, with kind, of, that, what kind of
0: behavior do you mean? It,
2: so I mentioned that the group was very spiritual in nature. And so we talked about uh, spiritual concepts like, you know, compassion and love and kindness and all that stuff. And yet we didn't act that way. So I was finding the group was very um, hypocritical. Yeah. Hypocritical being, we were being cruel to one another. And I include myself in that as well. You know, I had just learned to be uh, like, if someone wasn't following the group rules perfectly, uh, you become very critical of that. And it's because, of course, that independent yeah. thought is really dangerous to a cult. That's exactly what they don't want. They want you thinking the way that you're supposed to be thinking, not thinking independently. We'll do so, your thinking for you yeah exactly exactly yes <laughs> yeah. did you spend yeah. a
0: lot of time together with the other cult members was was it a like did you did you live on a compound of some kind or
2: no that's uh, a great question though and um what was interesting what, there was sort of a compound quote unquote so the woman who ran the group owned a fishing lodge and resort in uh, the sort of the central part of British Columbia, very remote. It was on a lake. And so there were some people who were in the group who lived with her 24-7. But others of us who lived in Vancouver, so I had my own apartment, had my own job, and I just went to the group twice a week. We met in the Wednesday and Thursday evenings for meditation nights. And but the group had become my entire social circle.
0: Mm hmm.
2: So the other thing that cults do is they have a very much an us versus them approach to life. And so us is the people in the group, however small that is, and them is literally the rest of the world. And so it's a very closed system. And anybody outside that group, anybody outside us is very suspect because their beliefs are different, of course. And the way a cult looks at it is they're wrong and we're right and so, and we can see this when we look at sort of extreme religions. Um, yeah. So even though I had my own job and my own apartment and everything, the the prison that you really experience when you're in a cult is between your ears. So mm-hmm. that's what keeps you in the group, not necessarily the a physical compound.
0: So the thing that made you leave was there. There was uh, some cognitive dissonance between the tenets and philosophy of the group and their actual behavior or was there a was there a catalyst was there a defining moment where you said this just isn't right I can't do this anymore
2: yeah there was a defining moment so I was dating someone who was in the group at the time and we were actually up at the fishing lodge and the cult leader, she wasn't there even she was in Arizona at the time, but she got on the phone with my boyfriend and told him to break up with me. And he did. <laughs> so and, <laughs> did and he you, did it. In,
0: <laughs> just, just randomly. Uh, hey, you know what? We're going to shuffle the pages a little bit here. You need to break up with her.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I go back to what the, the point I made about my mother and her marriage and Um, it was exactly the same scenario. So the cult leader needed my boyfriend to prove his loyalty. She never would have phrased it that way, but that's what was going on. And I didn't even see it that way at the time, but um, she needed him to be loyal to either her or me. And so she made him make a choice and he did. He chose her. Well, he, what he was choosing was God in his mind. And so he, yeah, he just was on the phone with her and she, they had a conversation and he did it, you know, he came out of the room where he'd been talking to her, and in front of three other people. It was so cruel, like it was done in such a cruel way, that that it just started a chain reaction in me. And I started thinking about the way that the group had been behaving. But the interesting thing is, so that was um, December 30th, 1999, I started seeing a therapist, and it took me 10 months before I left the group. So in other words, for those 10, ten months, I exactly I continued to go to the meditation evenings twice a week, um, continued to hang out with all the people still in the group. yeah, and I saw this therapist weekly for ten months and that's how long it took me to finally figure out this isn't a healthy place and but even then I wasn't using the word cult. it was another probably two and a half years. Before I finally put all the pieces together and went, oh, okay, this wasn't just a weird situation. This was actually uh, involved. And that's when I got really interested in learning about how cults work and started reading more books about them and stuff.
0: Wow, that's a that's quite a journey. I I mean, we're all glad that you made it out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a fascinating topic. I mean, we could we could have spent the entire hour talking about it uh (laughs) and then and then get into the dangerous ground of you know cults versus religion and so forth but uh (laughs) there's something else i wanted to touch on that that's part of your renaissance approach a, a good aspect of it and that is you are a fellow podcaster yes sir so tell us about your podcast
2: Yeah, so I have a weekly podcast called It's a Mystery and very similar to yours, I interview mystery authors and it's reader focused. So really wanting to match up uh, or connect mystery readers with authors and books that they may not have heard of yet. Um, And uh, it's been fun. I've been doing it for a couple of years and I absolutely love it. I love chatting with the other authors and hearing about their books and their characters. And, and there's just such a wide spectrum of, of mystery books and authors. It's, it's endlessly fascinating to me to talk to them.
0: Where can people uh, go to, to check your back catalog and to catch the next episode of your podcast?
2: Yeah, so if they go to com, all the episodes are listed there. Uh, you can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere you get your podcasts. I also broadcast the, the video version of the podcast on YouTube. So if you prefer to, to have a visual of myself talking to the authors, you can go to itsyoutube.com forward slash Alexandra Amore, and you'll find the, the videos there.
0: So historical mysteries, some of them short, romantic mysteries, middle grade adventures, uh, former cult memoir, podcaster. Do you have time for anything else?
2: <laughs> Eating and sleeping. That's about it. <laughs> if people are interested in checking out my work, the, as we mentioned, there's a brand new short mystery online on all the online retailers called A One Horse Open Sleigh. If they want, they can check out the first full length Town Called Horse novel, which is free actually on all the retailers. So that's a good place to start. And Charlie Horse, which we touched on, is free at my website. It's a shorter novella. And uh, if people sign up there, then you'll also receive each month the shorter novels that I'm trying to write. Uh, one a month for 2018 for my writing challenge.
0: Well, there you go. Uh, Alexandra Amore com And it's a really well put together mm-hmm. uh, uh, website. Very easy to navigate. Very informative. Nice looking website. Uh, so you. head over there, folks, and, and, and check it out. Um, do you think you might uh, uh, do any other kind of mystery outside of the uh, uh, horse series? Anything more contemporary? Or are you going to spend your time there for a while?
2: For a little while, anyway. Yeah, I suspect that at some point I'll want to branch out. But for now, at least for 2018, I'll be uh, spending my time in the town called Horse.
0: Well, it sounds like every month so will the readers uh, with something new. So I think that's a cool idea, and I wish you great luck in it. Thank you. And I want to tell you thanks for coming on the show.
2: Well, thank you for having me so much, Frank. This has been a real treat. It's uh, really been great chatting with you. Thank you.
0: And there you have it, folks, Uh, everything you ever wanted to know about Alexandra Moore. Pretty fascinating woman uh, when you think about it, all the things that she's up to and has experienced. Next month, uh, we'll be talking with uh, Zach Budrick, who is on the other end of the spectrum. He's a a debut novelist, uh, and we caught up with him for our flash-forward questions. Zach Budrick, what city do you live in now? Alexandria, Virginia. Who's your favorite writer? Uh, Dennis Lehane.
3: Favorite movie? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Favorite TV show? And be uncreative and go with the wire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's not uncreative, man. That's the Bible.
3: (laughs) Do you have a nickname? Zach is, for the most part, my nickname. Zachary makes you sound seven years old, no matter how old you are.
0: What are you working on right now?
3: A historical fiction, young adult book.
0: What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? I run. Your favorite sport? I guess running. Running's not a sport. <laughs> yeah,
3: that's, that's true. That's true. How about your favorite musician? Kind of back to basics, but I'm going to go with Springsteen.
0: Five second advice to aspiring writers?
3: Write every day.
0: Where would you like to go that you've never been?
3: Never actually been to Chicago. What's your favorite quote? Warren Zivon said when he was asked after he was diagnosed with lung cancer what his advice was on getting the most out of life, and he just said, enjoy every sandwich.
0: And now you know a little bit about Zach Budrick. Uh, We will learn more about him in the February episode. February will also be a good month for Frank Zafferro. I'll have a uh, new short story out in Down and Out the magazine called Adam Raised a Cain, and it is about Mick Sawyer, uh, one of the two protagonists in Blood on Blood. In March, Blood on Blood will be reissued by Down and Out Books along with the rest of the series uh, throughout the course of the year. And then in December, a new book in the series, a prequel called Harbinger, uh, will be released. So I'm pretty excited about all of that. I'd like to thank Alexandra Moore for coming on the show, Eric Campbell, and Down Out Books for being a great sponsor. Thanks to my family members for indulging me and uh, making some great recommendations. And we will talk with you next month uh, along with uh, Zach Budrick. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you, sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.